I titled the sermon, Holy Priests and Holy Feasts. And that's really the two sections we're going to be considering today. What God has called in the priesthood, in their holiness, and some practical uh, points of, of emphasis that he gives to the priesthood. And then also um, the full list in chapter 23 of all of the holy feasts that he ordains for his people to celebrate in the Old Testament. So uh, let me pray as we enter into these just incredible verses, and we'll ask for God's blessing on our time. Father, we now prepare to be addressed by you. We take very seriously your holy word. It is never a waste of ink. Every single letter counts. Every jot and tittle as it is matters. And so we we don't write it off or see it as a relic of the past. We see it as alive and active and purposeful in our lives to benefit us, to, to grow us, to, to teach us more of who you are. And certainly, Lord, above all else, to shine the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray today that we would see him in a new way and that we would see uh, how serious the call is that, that we be holy even as you are our great God. Lead us on now, we pray, and help us as we dig deep in these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can see on your sermon notes, the, the outline on the back of your bulletin, we've got a lot of blanks to fill in. And what I'd like to do is move fairly quickly through 21 and 22, and then slow up a bit in 23. Um, there's some review, some of this material in 21 and 22, we've already covered in previous chapters. Um, and so you'll notice that some of it's built out, but I just want to give some kind of overarching comments as we finish 21 and 22. So what I did on uh, the layout here is I want to do just a big chunk of text all together, and then at the end we'll make some observations about it for our lives. I titled this section, A Holy Calling, A Holy Calling and we're going to have the ESV audio just read for us again. I, I'm getting spoiled. These guys are good, and they never mess up. And uh, so let's just sit and remember, this is God's holy word. There is value even in the, just the, the hearing of it read. And so we'll take it in together, and then we'll move together from there. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. 
He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute, these he shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with a dead or a man who has had an omission of semen, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean, or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening, and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things, because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no lay person shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Okay, we made it. Made it through out there. All right. Now, there's a lot happening in these verses, but the overarching call here is 
those who are leaders are called to a higher standard. This is a, a, the high calling, really, of leadership. Uh, we see this in the New Testament in the requirements uh, for the elders, right? The qualifications for elder. There is a list of largely just character dis- displays that are true of a man. And, and that is part of what qualifies him to serve in this role. Um, in the Old Testament, certainly among the priesthood, that was already chosen. You, you're in the Levitical line. So how are you to walk with the Lord in holiness as you represent God to the people? It's a serious thing, something to take very seriously. The high calling of leadership, it, it meets them with greater responsibility and greater requirements. They are to be God's representative to the people. Therefore, the call of holiness upon their lives is an extremely serious one, even more so than that upon the congregation of Israel. Greater responsibility leads to greater requirements. They need to understand that when a leader carries that role, their personal sin is totally inconsistent with the role that they've been called to walk in. And their sin harms the congregation when they do that. And so paying very close attention to their lives and to obedience. It reaches beyond just the priests, though, doesn't it? Did you notice that? It reaches into who he chooses to marry. Um, It has all of these categories. Even when someone in the family passes away, there are things that the priests could do Uh, for immediate family members, but the high priest couldn't, right? He is set even apart above those priests. He, if his own family members pass away, he could not go near the body or participate in that way and so become defiled by having close contact with a dead body. So it has implications. The marriage connection here, that the priest was only to marry a certain person among the congregation one who was a virgin. There was a very careful guard upon uh, the lineage of the Levites, and they wanted no cause for question about whether this child was from him or maybe from someone else, right? So you can't marry an adulterous woman. You can't marry a divorced woman. You have to marry truly a virgin, and that was the requirement for the priest. Interesting how that plays out. Even specific things like the eating of holy food. Now picture this. If you're a priest and you are participating day to day in the sacrificing work, there are portions that are assigned to the priests and their families. Now these portions are holy. They have been sacrificed before the Lord. This is not just any food. This is holy food that is God's uh, specially designated portion for the priest. So the priest could not just say, Hey, let's have a Super Bowl party. Everybody come over. This is holy food. Just eat up. No, it didn't work that way. You needed to be within the immediate family of that priest if you were going to partake of the holy food. Such that if your daughter was married and became part of another family unit, she could no longer come over and just eat of the holy food that was brought in that day from the sacrifices. Now, but... If she was divorced or her husband died and she came back under the banner of her father in that home, 
she was able to eat at the table again. It's amazing the detail that's given here. But the care ultimately in all of these things goes back to the name of the Lord. Do not profane the name of the Lord. Show regard and be careful in all these things. So many details happening in there. Uh, there's also a section that details how important it is that the priest be holy, not just spiritually in his walk with the Lord, but physically holy, put together in a way where there was no deformities or inabilities or um, uh, you know, issues with his body. If he was going to go into the presence of God, at least at this time along the way, he needed to be in a whole condition in order to walk into the presence. Now, I'm struck by that because Jesus loved to meet people and help people who were broken and not whole, not put together. The lame, the blind, the, the hurting, the, the helpless. But don't miss this. When he came to them, he came whole. He was perfected in his body and certainly spiritually so, perfect in his obedience. So these things give us a sense. There's a certain pointer here we have toward Christ in these passages as well. I can't help but make the connection to our day. The reality is in the church, the leaders are called to a higher standard. They are called to carry the responsibility of shepherding and holiness in such a way that they're aware when a leader, a pastor, or an elder sins, that sin is harmful to the church. And our county is echoing out the stories of that harm. I heard just another day, just a terrible story of a pastor and someone else hitting it off and cheating on a wife, right? Think of the harm that's done to the holy name of God when a pastor walks in darkness. And the congregation is harmed in that way as well. It's true of an elder, but it's true of any leader, isn't it? We don't just want to think, well, it's, it's about those guys, right? It's about all of us. We are all, in one way or another, leaders. Parents, you are leaders of your children. We are all shapers of the faith of those around us. As we walk with Christ, we are shaping and shepherding. In fact, I was just telling my son and my daughter how grateful I am for the godly men and women that are part of this church that I can point to and say, look at that guy. Or Gracie, look at that godly woman. Be like her. Be like her. Now, if their lives are filled with sin and corruption, that's a problem. It's inconsistent. It defames the name rather than adorns the name of God. Paul tells Timothy, young Pastor Timothy, he says, listen, Timothy, you need to keep a close watch. Those words matter. A close watch. Dial in. Watch carefully your life, your, your own life, yourself, and your teaching or the doctrine, as it were. These are the two main categories as we think about the Christian life that are so important, but especially true of those who are in leadership, shaping, teaching, preaching positions. 
how easy it would be for Timothy to say, hey, I've got my theology squared away, right? It's all nailed down. The theology is good to go, but then fail to pay attention to his life. And pride takes a hold. Or anger, expressions of, of hostility, or lust, right? Whatever it may be. If he doesn't do both of these, he leaves himself open to attack. And don't you know the enemy loves to take out leaders in the church? It's a domino effect. We've seen this happen in our own state. Good ministry with great theology. And all of a sudden, it implodes. Why? He failed to keep a watch on his life. possible to do the opposite too right keep a close watch on your walk with god and completely forget about the doctrine the theology the truth of your teaching you can lead the sheep off a cliff in heresy if you don't keep a careful watch on your theology and your teaching so this is good for us as elders and leaders in the church but friends it's good for all of us in our lives we are shapers leaders called to be holy, to adorn the name of God, and to guard our hearts and our lives and our teaching. Holy living, you could say, and holy leading always must go together. They must always go together. We are not the kind of congregation that says, hey, church is about throwing the switch on, right? You just, it's just... You make sure everything is great on Sunday. Make sure people think you look good and you sound good and there's no, no issues in your life whatsoever. Just pretend well. That's Pharisee stuff. We don't want that. We don't want to live as Pharisees. We want to be real, honest, admitting. We, where would we be without the gospel? Like this week, we needed the gospel every day. But the flip side of this is equally dangerous. It's easy to say, we, we're just all about authenticity. We want authentic living. And all of a sudden, we esteem leaders in the church who get angry and curse. Well, what's wrong? That's not okay. That's not, that's not authentic. That's sinful. You see the, the, the challenge here? Authenticity does not excuse sinful behavior. It calls it what it is. It confesses it as sinful and wrong. And it claims it at the foot of the cross to turn from it, repent, and walk in holiness. And so we want to esteem elders, men in the church, who God raises up as men who truly are sinners, who are saved by grace. They're just regular guys. And at the same time, they are passionate about holiness and about growing in their walk with the Lord. They are good examples of us, of what it looks like to lead and men that we should follow and chase after. I love how Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I love that. That's the kind of leadership we want, friends. That's the kind of leadership you want in your life. You want to be able to say to those who look to you, Follow me as I follow Christ, right? I'm not Jesus, but I know him and I love him 
and I'm seeking to be more like him every day by God's grace. That's the commitment. Now, unblemished offerings. Chapter 22, the last half of these verses. I want to build this out a little bit. Unblemished offerings. Let's listen to the verses first, and then I'll say a few more words about those in a minute. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering, for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish, of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. I wanted to save these final verses and read them myself because they're so important for us to see this reoccurring theme. He concludes this section by saying, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You hear that over and again. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name. Listen to the heart of God and his concern, his jealousy to protect his own holiness in the lives of his people that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sets you apart to be holy, who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. What an amazing reminder. He is sovereign. He is king. He has created. He has redeemed. And now he's called us to lives of obedience and holiness as we walk with him. We are to honor the name of God. There are two ways to live. One way says, I love the Lord and I care nothing for how his name is held in the life that I lead. There is another way to say, I love the Lord and I cherish all that he is. His name is a sum up of all of his greatness. And I go by that name, Christian. I am a little Christ. I am called to be a reflection of Christ in this world. 
To say Jesus is my Savior and care nothing to obey Him is to deny that Jesus is indeed your Savior. Holiness is not optional for the Christian. Now, we're not consistent all the time, are we? We will fail, and when we do, we call it what it is, right? That's the difference. We're not trying to pretend that we're perfect. We're living in gospel air. We're breathing and, and, and enjoying the provision of the gospel every day. But our commitment is, I want to be holy as you are holy. Make me more, oh Lord, make me more this day like Christ. Holy through and through. That is such an important commitment. I was struck by how we have a presentation here in these chapters of an unblemished priest and an unblemished sacrifice and how both of these point us to Jesus. It's spectacular. Jesus truly is the great high priest, the priest with no sin, who never had to sacrifice for himself. He was obedient through and through. He was truly holy. And he was in himself the sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice. He gave his life to be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. What an amazing thing we have in Christ. All of these things are to point us to him. That's why this is here. That's why he had his people go through all of these things. It's always and all about Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of these things. We'll say more about that in a minute. Now, let's go to chapter 23 and work our way through these amazing celebrations. God's people are called to celebrate. This is true both in the Old Testament and certainly in the New as we see the fullness of God's plan unfold. Called to celebrate. Verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. So this is God's idea. This is his plan. This is the way he wanted his people in the Old Testament to, to live in this rhythm, this routine, year by year. So let's look at them. Three pilgrimage feasts I want to point out at the very beginning. When you look down over this list of seven, three of these are required pilgrimage feasts. So if you live in the promised land and you have a house out away from Jerusalem and it's time for the Passover, you get your family and you begin to sing the songs of ascent and you work your way up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And then also the Feast of Weeks and then the Feast of Booths or of uh, Tabernacles. So let's start with the first one that's pointed out in verse 3, the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day, the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now it must be said in order for us to appreciate the fullness of this Sabbath, we have to appreciate the six days that lead up to it. The six days of work, right? Remember, in Genesis 1 and 2, God gave work to Adam. This is before sin was in the world. Work is not a result of the fall. It is a beautiful gift of God to us. It is something, I believe, that we will have on the new earth. 
when we experience all the fullness of all the things and, and all the bad stuff is done away with, I think there's going to be assignments and work for us to do joyfully glorifying God each day as we work and labor. But then comes the day where you are to stop your work and focus on the Lord. A day of rest. No work is to be done. The Sabbath was a day set apart, unlike any other day for God's people. It was, in the way I see it, a, a weekly selah. You know, when you're reading through the Psalms and you see that word selah, it's the musical interlude in the middle of the song. So you have all these words, you have this beautiful song going, and then there's a selah. And what they would do then is they would just play. And the strings and the guitar and the cymbals, they would play. And you would pause and ponder. Pause and ponder. Consider his goodness. Consider his faithfulness. He's brought us through thus far. Look at how he's answered prayers. Look at how he helped us when we were weak this past week. When we needed help, when we needed this, he was there. Look at how he provides. The Sabbath is a joyful gift of Selah in the busy life of a follower of God. It is also a faith-filled day, right? It is a day where you trust God with no work. Now, in an agricultural society, this is hard to do. There's always more to do, right? There's always something that needs to be done every day. You're, you're farming, you're working, you've got animals. Someone's got to do something, but not on the Sabbath. You work hard in the previous days so that you can trust God with the work of the Sabbath day and say, it's going to be okay. We rest. And whatever we don't bring in on the Sabbath day, we trust you to supply. Friends, there is great wisdom in this kind of routine in our lives. Now, Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath requirement for us. He is truly our Sabbath, and so we're not bound by this Saturday keeping, but we're also not bound by Sunday keeping either. We could do this on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. We don't have to gather on Sunday, but the wisdom, the principle here is God created six days and the seventh. He took a sila. He rested and he delighted in what he made. The call for us is to order our lives similarly. And so whatever day it is, Sunday works great for most people. That's when we gather for worship. We pause work and we get together. For me, Sunday's a big work day. Like my whole week leads up to Sunday. So Monday is my Sabbath. Monday's the day that I see love. I get an extra cup of coffee, I look out the window, and I just take it in. Get in the Word. I relax. I break, and I rest and trust the Lord. He is sovereign. He is working. There's a lot of work to be done, but not today. Today we delight in Him. So don't approach this as some kind of law and legal thing. Approach this as a wise practice. For your soul to sila and worship, delight in God. Number two, the Passover, verse four, the Passover. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. 
For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So, we really have two feasts happening here. The Passover is paired with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're kind of lumped together because they always occur back to back. So the Passover happens at the first month. Now the the Israelites operated on a lunar calendar. So picture mid-March to mid-April. Just think spring. Okay, this is spring. That's when Passover would happen. And it was the 14th day at sunset when they would begin to observe Passover. And the whole ceremony of Passover with all of its uh, parts points the Israelites to when they were delivered from Egypt, from slavery, with the great and powerful 10th plague of God when he moved through the entire region and he struck down the firstborn of man and beast everywhere where the home was not painted with the blood of the sacrifice in faith that God would rescue. What an amazing thing this is. A cherished point of history for God's people. The wrath of God passed over their home as they were delivered from Egypt. And then it was immediately followed by, this just struck me this past week, the feast seven days of no leaven, right? And so what they would do is they would go through their home and they would seek out any breadcrumbs, anything that might have leaven in it. And you find it and you get rid of it. And the leaven for us is a pointer to sin in our lives. We have been delivered. We have been passed over, set free for what? For holiness. For unleavened living. That's the call of this ceremony. And so they would work hard at this and and make sure that for a whole week they would live leaven-free. What a purpose that is. What a great statement it is for our lives. As God's holy intention for His people set free is Obedience, holiness, hunt down sin, call it what it is, take it to the gospel and turn from it to walk in the light. Number three, first fruits, the feast of first fruits. Verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, saying, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest. So this is a future thing, right? It's going to happen when they take the promised land. You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer uh, a male lamb, a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour with oil, and a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and a drink offering with it shall be uh, uh, of wine, a, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout all your generations and in all your dwellings. Now, the feast of first fruits is really woven into not just the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, 
but it was also celebrated throughout the agricultural year in conjunction with the Feast of Weeks and also the Feast of Booths, right? So you have this moment where you say, Lord, look at what you've done. In the spring of the year, it was the barley harvest. It was the first crop that would come in. And as this barley was harvested, the first and the best belonged to the Lord. And so they would worship him with that and, and mark that moment. But the same was true when the, the lambs would give birth. They would take the first and the unblemished and offer it to the Lord. And the first that would open every womb, right? The same thing. So you have this throughout the, the agricultural year as they walk with the Lord. To give the first and the best to the giver of all good things. Now, friends, a lot of times in our lives, we practice this with a tithe, right? So you get a paycheck and you say, okay, before I run this through any of my other budget, the very first thing I do is say, Lord, this is yours. The whole check is yours, but I honor you. I worship, I express gratitude to you with this gift. This is yours. Now, I work from what's el what else is here, right? That's a wonderful way to echo out the principle of first fruits. You can do it with a lot of things. You can do it with animals still. That works well. Find someone to bless for the glory of God with, a, with an animal or with a harvest that you bring in in your field or, a, I don't know, an apple tree, whatever it might be. You can get creative with this. It's fun to bless with the first fruits of your field. Now, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks, verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And that's confusing math, but it'll make sense here in a minute. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved and make two tenths of an ephah. Um, then they shall be of fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. You shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be bur a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a, ple a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, a year old as a sacrifice for peace offerings, and the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. So there's a good example again of how the priest would be provided for in the worship and the offerings. And then the priest had the responsibility to take that holy food that he had received and do carefully with it among his family members only and uh, put the previous passage to work. You shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after you, your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It's like a stamp of authority that finishes that. Now, at first glance, we would say, well, this passage is, feels misplaced. Like we just covered that last week, right? It's not. It's purposeful. 
It's a reiteration of what we've already covered, but it fits well. So 50 days after the conclusion of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover would be what we would call in the New Testament Pentecost, right? 50 weeks. So 50 or 50 days, you have this, this celebration. This would include expressions of gratitude at the completion of the grain harvest. Generosity has been received by the Lord and bestowed to those in need, the poor, the sojourner. That's why it fits well there. So not only at first fruits do we say, Lord, the first and the best is yours, but at the end of the harvest, we look back and we say, oh, God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for supplying our needs. Once again this year, we honor you, we worship you, and we share because you are such a generous God. We give generously to others in need. Now, number five, the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 23, the Feast of Trumpets. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets. I wish we had a trumpet to blast in here right now. It's a very sharp and pronounced sound. You can just hear it ringing out across the land. The first day of the seventh month. It's a holy convocation. On this day you shall do no ordinary work. You shall present a food offering to the Lord. So, marking the seventh, which don't miss that number, that's the seven, the, the Lord's number. The seventh month should indeed stand out in the, the Israelites' calendar as the significant month. The day where the seventh month happens is a special day set apart. The blast of trumpets rings out. It's almost as if it's announcing this is coming. This is the month that we've been waiting for. This is drawing toward the end of the year into the fall, mid-September, mid-October. And then just a few days later, 10 days later, the Day of Atonement arrives. Now, we covered this in detail in chapter 16, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time building this out, but let's read 26 through 32 here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a time of holy uh, convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, uh, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. Think of that. This is a serious consequence if you are not fasting and celebrating this day. Whoever does any work on that very day, that person, God says, I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. So the tenth day of the seventh month, it's a day of fasting and worship, a celebration of atonement. Now just call this to mind again. One ram is killed. The other one is the scapegoat who is released to, to bear the iniquities of the people and disappear off into the farthest wilderness. Christ fulfills them both. He is the atoning sacrifice and at the same time 
our glorious scapegoat who removed our sins as far as east is from the west. All of this points to Jesus on the Day of Atonement. Don't forget as well, Jesus died at the time of the Day of Atonement. That is the work that he completed. He is the fulfillment of this so specifically and gloriously. Now, the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. It's hard to say that and not sound like I'm talking about beer. It's Booths. The Feast of Booths. Let's read this. Verse 33. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord, and on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim at times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbath, and besides your gifts, and besides your vow offerings, and besides your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Do you, you see the focus of daily life? This is overwhelmingly focused to the Lord, and the blood is flowing constantly through all of these sacrifices. Hmm. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate. The feast of the Lord, seven days. On the first day shall be solemn rest. On the eighth day, a solemn rest. And you shall take the first day, the fruit of splendid trees. I love the echo of God's delight in his creation. These are my splendid trees. So take, take the fruit of splendid trees and branches of the palms and the boughs of leafy trees, all which I have made. So you can just hear him delighting in this. And the willows down by the brook. You shall... Cut those branches and, and then rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You picture them just waving these for the Lord in celebration. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israel, Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel, listen to this, I made the people of Israel dwell in tents, basically, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then the sum up verse, thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. We made it. We made it through chapter 23. What a celebration this one. This was the granddaddy of them all. On the 15th day of the seventh month, they would gather in Jerusalem from all over the place for what I'm calling a week-long Old Testament church campout, okay? And at the moment that they were informed about this, they were currently dwelling in tents. You've got to think that they weren't as excited about dwelling in a tent for another seven days. When you've been tent camping for 40 years, you're not really excited about this feast, but you get to the promised land, you build your house, God is good, the land is provided another year. This would have been so exciting. The families would get their stuff together and they would go up to Jerusalem and they would 
pitch their tent all around the city and celebrate to the Lord seven days of celebration. In fact, in Numbers 28 and 29, we read 192 animals were sacrificed to the Lord in these eight days total. Seventy bulls were slaughtered in worship of God. This is a massive amount of sacrificing that takes place during this week each year. I imagine if you had an orchard in Jerusalem, you dreaded this. this. People are coming and they're cutting your trees up, but that's a second thought. Eh? Another thing. Somehow the Lord provided for the trees to keep growing and, and providing for the branches and the, and the worship. Now, to look back across all of these things, these, these come to mind for me. God provided for his people what I'm calling a sacred rhythm to their lives. It wasn't just uh, another day, uh, another year, uh, another decade. It was, this is, this is what it means to be my people. You are set apart. These are set aside moments where you celebrate and you worship. You pause the work of daily living and you focus in and adore me and celebrate together. I mean, God's people have always been a celebrating people. It's certainly true in the New Testament, but it was set up in the Old Testament as well. And we have much to learn, I think, even from these celebrations. When was the last time we celebrated together for a week? Imagine that. Huh. We live in a fast-paced day. Everything's happening. It's all on full. Your phone is always on. There's always an email to answer. There's always someone that needs this or that. The question is, can we take a minute and just stop, slow down? Will we be the kind of people who learn how to sila regularly in our lives? Hmm. Our response this morning, I've just got a few words here that just capture for me this, this, this heart of this. Number one is pausing, pausing. Work six days. Go for it. Work hard. Pour yourself out. Blood, sweat, and tears. Work for the glory of God. But then pause. Those guys that work seven days a week, I've seen them, builders in my neighborhood that work in seven days a week. Every day is the same. They're all just the same. It's just at the end of the day, it all blurs together. Your life loses its rhythm. We need this. God set this example for us in this creation work. Six days, the Lord worked in the seventh day, Selah. He took it in. He delighted in his work. We should do the same. Not because it's a legal requirement, but because it's wise and it's good for us. As we pause, we ponder, celebrate his sustaining grace, his faithfulness, his goodness to us, and we praise him. We praise him. That's why this works so well. The day of the Lord, like Resurrection Sunday, we get together and we celebrate the good news of what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. We praise Him. And the other thing that we are called to do in our lives all week long is point to Christ. Point to Christ. So we are to be a people who pause and ponder. We are to be a people who praise and then point. 
point to Christ. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 2. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. It's just, in a sense, he sums up all of Leviticus 23 in the New Covenant. He says, listen, this whole chapter, it's all the shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ. Friends, we're not under this law. Th these things don't apply to us in practice anymore. But they're glorious pointers to our faith, to our delight. It's as if these folks are living in the shadow lands and they're trying to discern whose shadow do we keep seeing as we go through these celebrations. And we say, now we, we know whose shadow it is. The substance is Christ. We see his face. And when we see the face of Christ, we see the glory of God. They're all about Christ. Watch what this does when you put this in the mix. Jesus is, move down the list here, Jesus is our only entrance into true and eternal Sabbath. Rest. Jesus is our only hope of God's wrath ever passing over and delivering us from our slavery to sin. It's Jesus. It always was. It was always about him. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. He died during Passover and he rose, as Paul says, as the first fruits. As they're celebrating first fruits, Jesus rises from the grave. The first fruits of the resurrection, we too, by faith, will be raised in a resurrection like his. Jesus is the faithful one through the weeks of our work. Think of those weeks as they labored. The high point of all of the work of agricultural season leading up to the harvest. All of that work, Jesus is the faithful one there. While we wait for his return, we work for his glory. And Jesus is the coming king who will be announced by the blast of the trumpet. When he returns, and he will, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise, and we will meet them together in the air and forever be with Jesus. Jesus is our full and final atonement. He is the full atonement for all of our sins and the scapegoat who has removed our sins as far as east is from the west. Jesus is our forever dwelling place in the land of promise. Emmanuel, God with us. He will be with His people forever to dwell with them, to wipe every tear from their eyes. All of that mourning and crying and pain and death, it's all gone. And forever, we will have a King on the throne in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we delight in the gift of this glorious Son. We thank you that you have shown us the face of your son, the, the face of the glory of God, that we see him, that you have stirred our hearts to love him and to embrace him, to respond from our death and darkness and rebellion and, and look in faith to Jesus Christ to be forgiven and set free. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect obedience to take upon yourself our sin and to die the death that we deserved and bury all of our garbage and sin and rebellion deep within the earth and then rise victoriously 
over sin and death and hell. We make much of you today, O oh, glorious Savior God. Be glorified in our lives as we take seriously to call the call to be holy. Help us to be on the hunt for leaven, Lord, for sin in our lives that would tarnish your name. We want to live lives that would lead others to the glory of Christ. And Lord, help us to do so. Help us to be serious about walking in the light as you are in the light. We thank you for being such a great and glorious God. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.